2: I believe in podcasting. Podcasting has made me my fortune. Hello and welcome to Caged In Presents Coppola Connections, brought to you as ever by the Breadcrumbs Collective and hosted by me, Petros Pat Syllabus. This is episode 36 and it is a big one as we are here to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Francis Ford Coppola's crime classic, The Godfather. So, yeah, you're in for a a real treat with this one. Um, If this is your first time listening to the podcast, what we do over here is watch every single film in the collective Coppola family filmography to determine are they the greatest film family of all time? Each week I'm joined by a guest, and this week uh, there's no difference because I'm joined by the amazing and lovely Tim Coleman, who... um, shared way too much of his time to speak to me about this film uh before we get into this yeah sorry about the delay on this episode um i've been i've been quite ill i've had a birthday all that kind of jazz and just um overstretched myself i thought i could release this episode in the space of like two days but then um uh, life 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 got in front of me and i couldn't i couldn't i couldn't really do it so i thought i'd take the week off and give it to you this week instead um, as ever, all of the usual spoiler warnings do apply. Obviously, we will be talking about this fifty-year-old film in all of its gory, grimy details. There is no horse's head left unturned. We swap out the Copulas and get to know the Corleone family. So, with all of that out of the way, all that's left to do is to leave the gun and take the cannoli as we make some Copula connections. This week, I made my guest an offer they couldn't refuse. Come and talk about this film, or a horse's head would be mysteriously appearing in their bed tomorrow morning. Helping me this week to determine if the Coppola family, like the Corleones, can rise to the top and be crowned the greatest film family of all time, or they sleep with the fishes like Luca Brasi. My consigliere for this chat is film journalist, podcaster, and lecturer Tim Coleman, Tim, do you spend time with your family?
1: A man who spends no time with his family can't really call himself a man. So that's a yes. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How are you, Tim? Are you well? I'm good, man. I'm good. How are you doing?
2: I'm, I'm very well. I feel immense amounts of pressure to talk about this film. And I'm also very excited. I've kind of been living in a hole of living in the world. Yeah. Just being nothing but. Pa- pasta uh tomato sauce and uh and eating cannolis left right and center so i'm i'm a dream it's a dream, the it's a dream. godfather <laughs> so before yeah before we get into the chat today obviously tell tell us a bit about yourself the kind of different things you do obviously you have um yeah the the the, the blog and the the, the the podcast and stuff like that to, to sell your wares up front tim let's not put it at the back.
1: Oh, thanks man that's very kind. Um yes, yeah, so I'm a freelance film journalist. Uh, I freelance for a bunch of different places like uh, Total Film, um Jump Cut Online, Second Sight Films and I also run a website called Moving Pictures Film Club um which has been going for like a few years. Um but we about a year ago now, uh, coming up on a year ago, we kind of relaunched and brought a bunch of other contributors on board um and we have been yeah just kind of growing uh over the last 12 months or so so we're now effectively like a this kind of collective of horror and horror adjacent uh genre fans who um just cover all things that kind of go bump in the night so we're kind of covering horror film festivals like fright fest and grim fest and cellular screams um interviewing directors and writers and different talent and yeah we just launched the moving pictures podcast in january this year so we releasing monthly episodes we we do like a deep dive on a genre classic and yeah it's uh it is a joyful thing just to spend your time talking to smart people about the stuff you love
2: exactly exactly it feels like you've you've created your own little kind of um family over there you're you're one of one of the one of the five families of uh, (laughs) (laughs) i mean that could be like
1: oh sorry that could be really good or it could mean like we're about to go to war or something i'm not sure
2: yeah you're not going to the mattresses just yet you're kind of you're kind of uh you're you're living free and easy just don't yeah just 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 don't double cross anyone don't take anyone out like i'm sure i'm sure Mike Munster wouldn't like it if you took Brad Hansen out or something like that. His, his, his <laughs> Luca Brazzi or something like that. <laughs> no, I, I,
1: I would, I would never, never dream of such a thing. It would be me getting gunned down at some kind of level crossing if anything were to <laughs> go down that route. <laughs> Amazing, Tim.
2: Well, I always like to open up these conversations, first of all, by asking my guests when they first became aware of the Coppola family and what was your entry point and when did you kind of Start to realize that there wasn't just one of them. There's a whole kind of horde of a family that they are.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I, I, have been aware obviously for a while that there are many, many Coppolas. Um, but it was only when you kindly provided me with the family tree as part of our prep for today that I was like, wow, there are like so many people in the film industry <laughs> associated with this, this, uh this dynasty really um so if, if i look at like the individual players I, it's probably going to be a cliche but the two people who are my entry point out of that list of 20 plus individuals would be of course Nicolas cage um uh-huh. and the other one being francis ford coppola um who is of course the director of the film we're talking about today um but yeah i mean i i kind of uh was born in the early 80s so i kind of came of age in terms of taking myself to the cinema mid 90s which was kind of prime cage territory you know we had like the rock and face off conair and leaving las vegas um and you know i was kind of getting into some of his older stuff retroactively like getting vhs tapes and stuff like raising arizona Um, but i I think i only found out years later that he was a birth relative of uh francis ford Coppola, and his you know his real name of course is nicholas kim Coppola. um but yeah like about the same sort of time like i was getting into some classic cinema and so like my parents were showing me stuff like apocalypse now the conversation um and yeah like uh, around about the late 90s I, i'm guessing it was probably maybe like the 25th anniversary of the godfather trilogy like paramount re-released the uh the films on this kind of leather-bound vhs box set and uh yeah i just remember like picking it picking it up and i watched. The three films on three successive days, um, and was knocked on my back by the sheer majesty of cinema. That is, you know, Francis Ford Coppola in in full flight, um, yeah, in in the Godfather legacy.
2: Well, yeah, I've kind of got like a—it's not that much of a a revelation to people who listen to this podcast regularly, but I've never watched part three, and I've Mm -hmm. only watched part two very recently, just because. Mm -hmm. They were massive blind spots for me, and even 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 so much this film as well. There's like an element to it that I'd watch. I definitely watch first one when I was way too young and kind of like didn't understand it and had like that almost, uh, oh, I suppose your dad's kind of film, kind of like very yeah. very. Uh, I'm I'm a little bit younger, so uh, yeah, I'll be thirty one tomorrow as we're <laughs> recording. So and like, happy I, birthday a, to you. <laughs> thank you yeah yeah there was like this weird stuffiness to to it do you know what I mean that i was like kind of put off mm. put off by but yeah watching and especially having the experience of watching the first and the second one on big screen fairly recently mm-hmm. i was kind of mm-hmm. like and yeah when i knew i was covering them for this podcast i was like ah i should rewatch. i should like rewatch the first one i should watch the second one but i was like probably going to be a bit more fun for maybe the listeners mm-hmm. and like uh me as well kind of to really immerse myself into into these films kind of and come at it afresh almost do you know what i mean like i've, mm-hmm. I've, I've watched mm-hmm. I've, wa- I've watched this first film maybe two three four times in the mm-hmm. in the past like month or so so yeah wow. i've kind of gone from having I don't know, maybe like a 15-year gap between seeing mm-hmm. seeing it to like kind of just watching it, watching it on its own, watching it with the director's commentary, kind of like really yeah. like in, ingesting everything that, <laughs> that, 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 that this film has to offer. Um, Amazing. So let me ask you, Tim, have you ever met a Copler? Obviously, like, yeah, you're, you're moving and shaking in, in film circles. Have, have you ever had the, the good fortune of meeting a Coppola?
1: so not not to my knowledge and there are there are so many of them um maybe <laughs> but i i don't think so but i was trying to think from a, like a 6 degrees of separation type deal what's the closest i've ever come and so bear with me this is this is pretty thin but i think this is my closest uh connection is that um uh i think it was around about 2007 2008 um i was visiting um a friend of mine over in california and my wife and i were in L.A. um, for New Year's Day. And um, we were kind of joking when we were going to L.A., like, oh, maybe we'll see some famous people. Ah, of course you won't do because L.A.'s a massive city and, you know, it's full of just regular non-famous people. Um, But we ended up, like, going to a bookstore and these kids got onto the... um, escalator in front of us and then we got on and then we realized the parents were on behind us and I felt like a bit awkward because I didn't you know didn't mean to get in between like parents and their kids and turned around and the parent was Don Cheadle um, and, and his partner um, now so my connection would be that Don Cheadle uh, was in Iron Man 2 with Scarlett Johansson and of course Scarlett Johansson was in Lost in Translation directed by Sophia Coppola so very <laughs> very tangentially that, that is the closest I can give I'm afraid
2: uh, that's amazing that, that's up there with somebody saying they saw phantom planet uh with jason and <laughs> drums so so that's the, that's the places they came to meeting coppola. amazing um, amazing so yeah the, the the next question i always um have on this is what was the first francis ford coppola film you saw would it have been you, you mentioned apocalypse now or, or would it have been the godfather perhaps
1: yeah i mean it's that whole period of my life i guess is a little bit soupy in terms of trying to put uh-huh. which came first and maybe yes. particularly because um and this is a controversial thing to say i'm not the biggest fan of apocalypse now um uh-huh. and so i don't think it made the the most lasting impression upon me when i saw it like certain moments yes but not not as a wow this is a defining experience and similarly for the conversation like you i can kind of remember uh that you know they're they're incredibly well made films, but not ones that I have a big emotional connection with, so probably the the first Francis movie which really knocked my socks off was Godfather One followed twenty four hours later by Godfather Two um, which is <laughs> you know um an unbelievable double bill essentially i mean and I actually would say i've only seen Godfather three once, so this is with the caveat that that was once twenty three years ago so i I will revisit it now that they've brought out the um the kind of re-edited version the uh Mm -hmm. uh, godfather coda Mm -hmm. i believe it's called um but yeah i think i think godfather 3 was was good just not not in the same stratospheric level of the first two films
2: interesting yeah i find i find the fact that having not seen the third one the title of coda definitely ruined what happens at the end of that film for me (laughs)
1: yeah i mean it's a bold move it's kind of the question of like how long after a film comes out is it okay to spoil it because like putting yeah the fact that the main character dies in the title that that is a power move like same way as like the planet of the apes poster which has the last shot on the poster you know it's kind of swings for the fences yeah
2: yeah i guess by today's standards though and if you go by by twitter sometimes spoilers are day of release or in some mm. cases with with some some journalists before a film has even been released so uh, oh, I'm, <laughs> i don't, yeah i'm sure i'm sure coppola i don't know there was a there was a discussion probably made that like, surely everybody's in this movie by now
1: <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i guess like it, it's an interesting way of bringing the finality of michael's story front and center because in many ways that, without spoiling anything beyond the title for you for part three like the the three films together are collectively the rise and fall of michael corleone um yeah, yeah. and so it kind of ties it in a bow but yeah yeah maybe <laughs> i think that maybe they're trying to redeem the kind of slightly uh infamous reputation part three has where it was fairly maligned i think unfairly i think it, like i said i think it's still a decent film It's just. Coming in the kind of massive shadows of his two previous installments.
2: Definitely that, that, that kind of gaping uh, gap between those films being released as well, right? So it's what, it's mm-hmm. 1974 for part two, and then 1990 mm-hmm. for part, part three. And then obviously, Franz Ford is a different director, Al Pacino is a vastly different actor. Like, it's, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I can only imagine that they kind of you know i'm yeah i'm looking forward to uh, delving into it but we're not here to talk about uh, godfather part 3 we are here of course to talk about the original 1972 classic i feel i feel safe in calling it a classic absolutely i that, mean
1: don't? i don't think they get much more classic than this this is pretty much the you know the locked down definition i think of of classic i think you're on safe ground with that
3: perfect well before we um yeah before we delve into it let's quickly listen to the trailer.
4: My father's no different than any other powerful man who's... Responsible for other people. I had this part in the picture. It
5: puts me right back up on top again. This Hollywood big shot's gonna give you what you want. He says there's no chance. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't
6: refuse.
4: You know, my father, the men are coming here to kill him. Now you wanna get mixed up in the family
0: business? you weren't going to become a man like your father.
5: I never wanted this for you.
4: Freedom, you're my older brother, and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. Ever. Michael, do you renounce Satan and all his works? I do renounce him. (laughs) Don't ask me about my business, Kate.
3: Is it true?
5: Leave the gun. Take the cannoli.
2: so the godfather is directed by of course francis ford coppola based on the novel by mario puto of the same name and adapted to screen by both francis ford coppola and mario pizzo but we'll get into that because it's kind of a whole bit of a sordid affair what happened kind of there it's kind of a weird, weird goings on there was two scripts at one point but yeah i'm sure i'm sure we'll delve into that the film stars marlon brando Al Pacino, James Kahn, Robert Niro, Diane Keaton, Talia Shire, John Cazal, Abe Vigoda, and Robert Castellano. Well, there's a whole host of other great talents. The budget for this film was $6 to $7.2 million. Uh, I think Francis Ford Coppola said in the commentary for this film that it was $6.5, I believe. Uh, uh, and the box office return was two hundred and fifty. million. 291 million dollars i don't know why they can't uh they can't they can't they can't figure out the exact amount on that and it was released in the u.s on general release on march 24th 1972 so when you're listening to this if you listen to it on day of release that is exactly 50 years ago today so tim um yeah can you expand on you, you you said that you kind of watched them over three consecutive nights. Can you take us back to what was your impression that that first night when you kind of after you were, after the the VHS had ejected <laughs> The Godfather for the first time?
1: Oh man, it just it just uh completely blew me away, it, which isn't the most eloquent thing that I could say, I guess, but <laughs> I, it just just left me completely reeling. I think um I rewatched the film again Last night, and I just tweeted out something to the effect of like there there are good films, there are great films, and then there are films which just transcend. Um, and like five stars really is not enough, and I still feel that way. I, I think, you know, you. I, I like a a broad diet of cinema. I enjoy like trash cinema as well. Um, mm-hmm. But there are sometimes you, you watch a film like for example, the Godfather and you suddenly think, Oh my gosh, this is what cinema can be like. This is the heights it can touch. This is the, the depths it can achieve. I felt very similarly last year. I watched um the passion of Joan of Arc for the first time, um, which just again, like completely took me out of myself and, and, just operating on this higher plane of, of cinematic artistry which so few other uh, films and and actors and directors can touch um, and every now and again it comes together in this kind of unassailable masterpiece and so yeah I mean I felt very similarly back in I'm guessing it was around 97 um, just it would, I guess it would make sense that's when Paramount released a anniversary box set of the films um, and I, I think I was it was either in the school holidays or um for whatever reason I was at home for three consecutive days. And so I remember I sat down with my brother and my mum and watched them just one after the other. And uh it was just like a glorious uh holiday where you're luxuriating mm-hmm. essentially in in 1940s New York, in 1940s Sicily, and then going as of course as the films progress, it goes through the decades of the uh, changing fortunes of both the Quagliones and of, uh, of America. And uh, yeah, I mean, even like rewatching uh, the first film, and of course, they're long films. Like the first film's just a, a shy, just shy of uh, three hours. But yeah, so I finished it last night at like 11.30, and I was like, I could put the second one on right now because I just want to stay in that universe. I want to stay with these characters. Yes. Um, it's long but perfectly paced um i like yeah we said earlier you've watched it five times in the last month that doesn't sound like a chore that sounds like a like a privilege almost you know it's such a yeah. such an incredible film
2: there's something i wanted to pick up on you said about it being like your enjoyment of trash cinema and what i find fascinating about the godfather and its kind of inception is obviously it we're talking off mic about the fact that it comes from a fairly trashy novel like mario puzo himself has mm. said like if if he if he know if he knew what kind of a classic it would become in years years he would have written it better he would have kind of yes. like uh, there's there's a lot of like salacious stuff in there there's a lot of stuff that mm-hmm. you can see why it made the cutting room floor when coppola came to mm-hmm. adapt it um and even like the way that the film is what what came together and the fact that it was like it was paramount, kind of at a term of like time of turmoil in their mm. in, in in their fortunes. And they they wanted to make money. And it's it's something mm. you don't really think about when you think of art. Do you know what I mean? It's mm. like that 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 normally like art commerce don't meld so well together. Mm. It's kind of the <laughs> the critically acclaimed films are kind of yeah mm-hmm. but only only the critics do you know what I mean? Like you look at sight and sounds mm-hmm. like top 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 hundred films of the year, it's like uh well half of them it's like, well they're not actually out until next year, guy. But then like mm-hmm. uh, and, uh most of them it's like Joe Public in the street hasn't has 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 ne is never gonna see this film. Or or yeah. whatever. But they're kind of they're darlings. Uh, whereas the box office fair kind of Joe public in the street scene they love. Mm. And this film, this film was made with the intention of being, I guess like today it would be, this was supposed to be like your tentpole movie of the year. It was mm. originally supposed mm-hmm. to come out on uh, Christmas mm-hmm. 1971. So that, yeah, it would have been built basically nowadays. What, what, what a Marvel film would be built as mm. like the kind of, this is your big, but like take the whole family i know that there was there was kind of uh tussles with the mpaa with this film in regards to like uh they uh, to get the age because obviously like in america like as soon as something r-rated you can take the whole family something that i've never quite mm. understood anyway like as long as you're with somebody over the age of 17 but yeah like, yes. they intended for people to take like enough, do you know what I mean? Like make it tame enough that it didn't get like a, an X rating, or do you know what I mean? Like it was, it was, it was, mm-hmm. it was enjoyable enough for the for the whole family in a weird way. So yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's yeah, I think I, I think it's crazy that it's kind of like you said, it is this um mark of just like amazing things coming together. But I always find it fascinating that the intentions of it weren't that at all at least not on everyone's part do you know what I, mean? I mm. think Francis Ford Coppola maybe had different ideas mm. and kind of fought for those ideas but the studio behind it very much saw it as like a, a cash grab
1: yeah yeah I know it is really interesting isn't it and like um, I should say I've not actually read Pitzer's uh, novel um, but it, it, I feel like Paramount kind of um, happened upon this real uh cash cow, basically like they um the book was published in sixty nine um and became this uh, incredible best selling work in fact, I think it was at the time, and for several years afterwards the number one best selling published work in history um which is incredible um but like Paramount came across it um in sixty seven so like before it kind of hit that astronomic level of success um and there was this a a literary scout from Paramount that came across I think it was only a sixty page manuscript at that point called Mafia. Yeah. And they kind of like saw the potential that it had, brought it to Paramount's Vice President of Production, Peter Bart, um, and they offered uh Puzo, I think it was twelve and a half grand in dollars uh to option the work, with the option of then an additional eighty thousand if the finished work was made into a film. Um and it, it was not a lot of money for like optioning a novel. And Puzo's agent, like, was telling him not to do it, um, but he was apparently desperate for money to pay off some gambling debts at the time, and so he he took it. Um, and then, like, Paramount ended up with this massive success story in their hands because, like, two years later, the, the novel comes out and it's this runaway success. And um, yeah, I mean, in a way, they just got incredibly lucky that they just bet on the right horse, and they that that talent scout, that literary scout, saw the potential in Puzo's novel and uh, they invested very wisely.
3: I
2: love the fact as well that like they kind of in the same way that I think that Paramount preyed upon Francis Ford Coppola's need for money as well. Yes, yes, yes. Kind of at the time had kind of come off the back of directing the rain people. Um, Him and George Mm -hmm. Lucas had just made THX uh, 1338 and uh, it was George Lucas who said to him when uh, the studio said, like, after... I, th- I think they had kind of asked everyone who was everyone and then a few other people you've never heard of and then kind of mm-hmm. came to Coppola basically using him as a patsy as well, going, mm. well, he's Italian-American. We can yes, not yes. offend the the Italian-American community by getting this guy to direct this film for us, which I think is mm. wholly fascinating and kind of... Uh, very fascinating, yeah. Ha, fa, fascinating and quite, 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 quite problematic. And I, I guess Coppola got to stick the two fingers up to them by kind of threading through this message that he has against the kind of um, yes American system and capitalism and kind of uh-huh. what all of that is throughout the Godfather. But yeah, um, front, yeah, uh, American American Zoetrope, Francis Ford Coppola's company think were in debt to paramount sales and their um they just needed money and george lucas said to him uh, you, you need to take this film francis we owe i think at that time like forty thousand dollars which uh, oh four hundred i think it was chunk of, yeah four hundred yeah yeah four hundred dollars yeah 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 so so yeah that which would have been a big chunk of change in those days right
1: yeah a hundred percent man i mean it's a lot of money now right and these are young guys at the time, like a, a couple of was 29 when he made The Godfather. So we're thinking this is before that point. And he, I mean, first of all, just pause for a second and that say that is offensively young to be that talented. <laughs> um, you know, you and I are both uh, past 29 now. And so I, you look back on, um, yeah, on uh, filmmakers who t- turn out these incredible masterpieces of age with nothing but awe and respect um but yeah i mean you're, you're completely right they they owed um this vast sum of money to um to kind of pay for the overruns from thx 1138 and it was a gig right um i think i mean i i i like to think and maybe this is naive that there was an element where paramount were making decisions of course because they wanted to get a good return on their investment to do like filmmaking is a business to studios of course it is uh-huh um but equally i think they acknowledged that some of the the issues with previous mafia films they turned out had been that they felt inauthentic um and so there's this phrase that paramount uh used i think that they wanted the godfather to be ethnic to the core um uh-huh. which, again, it could sound kind of problematic, and may- maybe it is, but it also maybe acknowledged that if you're telling a story about the Italian-American crime families, don't put a bunch of, uh, you know, non-Italian-Americans in the in the roles. It just maybe doesn't work. Um, and so, yeah, they-, they did approach other people. They approached, like, Sergio Leone, who um, turned it down to go off and apparently go and make uh, Once Upon a Time in America, came to, like, other... People from the American New Wave, people like uh, Peter Bogdanovich, was approached, but he declined it because he didn't want to make a mafia film. Um, yeah, and then eventually it lands in in uh, Coppola's lap. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's in, it's interesting. You mentioned the novel um, being quite salacious, and then is what I find amusing is apparently when uh, when Coppola read it, um, just that he was really dismissive, dismissive of it, um, and I think the phrase he used it was that is the phrase he used was that it was pretty cheap stuff, which is hilarious, <laughs> you know, considering what it went on to become.
2: Yeah, he he says in um the audio book for the notebook that he made, like for the film, that uh he kind of saw the cover for it and it always had that um puppets like marionette puppet hand and he was like, Oh, this book's gonna be about like Machiavellian, like thingy for control, it's gonna be it's gonna be all the stuff I'm into and then kind of started turning the pages and it was like mm-hmm. this isn't the book I thought it was Yeah at all. Like yeah. and then like um but kind of he, he had this kind of fateful day as well where kind of
3: um I think it was yeah, Peter Bart had come to speak to him about uh, uh like do it doing the film
2: kind of had mentioned the novel, and that same day had had a phone call with Marlon Brando mm. because Brando was um, turning him down to be in the conversation. Wow. leads to a whole other conversation of what that film could have been. Yeah, yeah. Who would have Marlon Brando been in that film? Would he have been Harry Cole? Would he have maybe been the, the Robert Duvall character? It would Yeah, like, uh, I kind mm. of want to see... Alan Brando as Harry Cole for mm-hmm. some
3: weird reason now. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah.
2: So, so yeah. Like, let's talk about the film itself. And how do you feel? Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know how you feel about the opening, but like, I just think I let 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 let's listen. I've got a bit of Bonasera's. I've got the exact opening to the film, just so like, just to mm-hmm. I'm sure everyone's heard it. But it's, I don't know. Let's live in it, Tim.
1: Let's
5: go I believe it. in America. America has made my fortune. And I raised my daughter in the American fashion. I gave her freedom, but I taught her never to dishonor her family. She found a boyfriend, not an Italian. She went to the movies with him. She stayed out late. I didn't protest. Two months ago, he took her for a drive with another boyfriend. They made her drink whiskey, and then they tried to take advantage of her. She resisted. She kept her honor. So they beat her like an animal. When I went to the hospital, her nose was broken. Her jaw was shattered. Help to get up. My wife, she couldn't even weep because of the pain, but I wept. Why did I weep? She was the light of my life. Beautiful girl.
2: So what do you make of the opening to, to the Godfather and Bonassare's speech?
1: I mean, what struck me on my, my recent rewatch it's firstly, of course, how perfect that whole scene is. it's an absolute masterclass in script writing, in performance work, in foreshadowing, in structure. Um, I mean that that we heard it there in that clip. The the first line of the film is I believe in America. And mm-hmm. as a as a sequence of about five to ten minutes long, it sets out the themes of the entire of the entire film. Um, in kind of a microcosm. It, there's this idea of of what is America. It's this kind of blend of the old, like these guys, all Sicilian and Italian uh, migrants, either first or second generation. Um, and then the new world that is America and the, this idea of we're both old and new. We've got a foot in both old tradition, but a new way of working. Um, and that's reflected in the the kind of dichotomy as well between criminality and respectability. So like as that, that uh, scene progresses, we learned that the the two men who assaulted this man's daughter were given suspended sentences. So they walked free from from the court. And so he's asking Don Corleone to to uh, avenge his daughter. And so there's the justice of the state and there's the, the justice of the mafia. Um, or if you phrase it another way, perhaps justice versus revenge. Um, and there's all the stuff around men and women as well. Like uh, this is about a crime that's been committed against a woman. And as we go through the film, there are many crimes of different sorts that connect you know committed against women both you know the the assaults which corleone's daughter suffers like this the scene takes place during his daughter connie's uh wedding who's played of course by talia shire who's coppola's uh sister um but she herself becomes a victim of domestic abuse from her her partner um and yeah there's just like so so much richness so much textual richness in that scene it it Beautifully, just sets up the the tone and the concerns of of what we're going to be exploring over the next three hours.
2: Yeah, and I think that like what it cleverly does as well is all of the people that come to visit uh, Don Corle. Well, (laughs) Don Corle. This this is a a boner contention for a lot of people as well is the fact that Mario Mario Puzo know nothing about the mafia. And that uh, mm. I think people have said that nobody would be called Don Corleone; he would be, uh, don- <laughs> he'd be Don Vito, like the mafia. Don Vito, yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, all of the people that come to visit Don Vito, like, it's this amazing, like you said, it's this amazing thing of, um, in the script writing, and I guess like, play somewhat in the novel, but it's like this, this Chekhov's gun. Different like mm. characters that like you kind you kind of think like oh and 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 it sets up what what the don's kind of whole shtick is like this kind of I will do you a favor, but one day like he says to Bonzo, mm. one day it may never come, but I will call upon you, and then it's like setting mm. up these beautiful dominoes that like one mm. by one throughout the film you kind of see whether it is like. Uh, even the baker like um -hmm. he he mentions a a young man named enzo and you don't really think Mm. anything of it like maybe on first watch and then kind of (laughs) if you're like me and you've watched it like a lot in quick succession like he's the guy who turns up to the, the hospital and kind of stands there with michael or there's like johnny fontaine like obviously kind of has this big presence there's a whole like thing around him is kind of this this film's conduit for someone like frank sinatra it's uh mm-hmm. there's a whole like controversy around that whole thing and like frank sinatra hated the film because of it and stuff like that but then like mm-hmm. yeah you've got you've got johnny fontaine who like you think oh maybe he's gonna turn up throughout this film and it's not really until the last yeah. 20 minutes or so that he kind of like raises his head and it's like Ah, that is like his, his kind. Of him coming into the film again is like that kind of final domino dropping yes. of these kind of like small things that are set up in this mm. this introduction. And I think I think I think it's really, really fascinating and the kind of um, I don't mm. know, like um, yeah, like it, it. This feels like a good opportunity to like because I guess the first. Character of of the lead cast we get introduced to is the Don himself, mm-hmm. played by played by Marlon Brando. Um, what do you think of Brando's performance in
3: this film?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's fantastic. Um, however, I, what I would say is it's one of those performances which is so iconic. It's perhaps a little bit difficult to see it with the kind of clarity that one might have seen it in seventy two. Because if anyone ever does an impersonation of a mob boss, it will tend to be, you know, that the Brando oh, respect me, respect the family. You know, that's a terrible Brando impression. A complete apologies to <laughs> to all Brando fans listening. Um, but you know what I mean. Like it's an iconic, um, it's an iconic voice. It's an iconic. The way his face looks with the sagging jowly cheeks. You know um but i think it's wonderful and i think the thing that really comes across very beautifully in that scene and it's partly in the writing but it's also in in brandon's performance is the warmth that Vito has as a person um because you you know it's a film about the mob and so you're thinking like this guy's talking about this horrendous assault that his daughter suffered clearly the godfather's just going to go and blow those guys away but um that cuz that's what that's what the father's asking for but but Vito's first act is an act of restraint he says well these guys are your daughter is alive i can't kill these guys that's not justice that's vengeance um but he does agree to have them badly assaulted as a consummate retaliation for their crimes um so there's that element of like well, okay so he's not like this completely unhinged killer he's got some kind of moral code that he's thinking about proportionality in response and then like he's saying all this stuff around it, it's not just about I'm going to go and do this stuff. It's about relationships that matter, uh, relationships really matter to me because he makes this whole thing about how you coming to ask me for a favor on the day of my daughter's wedding. But like you've never invited me to your house for a coffee. And this yeah. is the sense of actually all what matters to him is having uh, family in, in the kind of the biggest communal sense like the collegiate sense of um having genuine uh filial kind of connections with people like like i want you to be in my life as as a friend and as a confidant and i want to come and uh just be you know us all all be together as this kind of um sicilian community um yes there is that incredibly dark undertone and that's something which becomes increasingly more you know prominent as the as the narrative progresses um and, and there's this like if you like a, a dark heart that sits beneath that that warmth but but nevertheless i think there is a genuine warmth in Vito's, um in Vito's person i think brando captures that marvelously
2: yeah and i think it's it's it's, it's fascinating because to look at brando in context to the film obviously at the time like he was seen as um like like movie like uh what's the world i'm trying to look for like kind of like i don't know it's like the black spot on a film like they the the studios thought that if you cast brando in a film like people would literally not watch you Mm. um, i I, I pulled a clip of francis ford coppola talking about trying to convince the studio to to cast
6: brand i focused on the idea of marlon i said well gee if marlon brando Does this it could be like a great performance he'll make himself older he'll turn himself into some kind of a Italian person just through his talent and his great genius so when I mentioned it to Mario Puzo Mario said well you know Marlon Brando was the first guy he thought of but the idea of Marlon Brando as Vito Corleone sank like a lead balloon I remember in one meeting I was told by the then president Of Paramount said to me as president of Paramount Pictures I am telling you that Marlon Brando will not appear in this motion picture. So I continued talking and arguing and finally they agreed to let me discuss the idea of Marlon Brando being in the movie if I honored three stipulations. A he would do a screen test. B he would do the film for free and C he would put up a bond so that if any of his shenanigans or any trouble came from him being on the set that it would guarantee the losses. So, I said, "Okay." I said, "Okay, I accept," you know. What could I do? I, uh, I accepted these three things for Marlon. So, I then called up Marlon Brando and suggested maybe it'd be nice if I did like a little makeup test or something. I could come over your house and you know, he said to me, "All right." <laughs>
2: So yeah, it feels like a good point to talk about that makeup test and kind of who Marlon Brando was at that time like he, as I said he was this guy who a lot of people saw as like uh, very hard to work with like little mm. did they know he'd become even harder to work with in the future <laughs> <laughs> um but like he yeah even when they went over to Marlon's house like they had to covertly uh, pitch it to like pitch it to him differently they said it was a makeup test but it was mm. them like uh selling it to whether it was bob evans the 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 president of um paramount at the time or charlie blue dawn the owner and yeah they uh, coppola took over some like provolone cheese and some cigars and something mm. that coppola was really into was kind of giving people things to act with and that's who their character mm. was and uh he said like in front of his eyes whilst they were kind of doing this 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 test with him like him getting into character seeing what he'd be like as the don like uh he said like he he pulled out this boot polish he had like a ponytail at the time and he kind of like really got it tight on the back of boot polish got it through his hair and then he picked out some some cotton wool or tissue, just put it in his cheeks and said, I, I think this guy should look like a bulldog, Francis. Like mm. I think that's, like, that's how I envisioned this guy. And I answered the phone when somebody called in character as Don Vito, mm. which I think is like fantastic. And he, he was sold to it. And mm. when Francis showed the footage to Charlie Blue Don, he was like, who had said, like, never in a million years will mm. Marlon Brando be in this picture kind of saw the footage of brando once he had kind of got himself Mm -hmm. done Mm -hmm. up like the don and was like he's he's perfect for it i think i think he is and it's it's it's, um i think you forget that he was he was 47 years old at the time as well Mm -hmm. so like he's obviously playing he's playing that older and there's that amazing dick smith like prosthetics on him to make him look that Mm-hmm. That that much older, but yeah, I think I think Marlon Brando, because it, it it's very I think it's very clever as a film that it sells you on Brando, but then it's like,
3: mm.
2: oh, the film isn't even about John Vito's character. it's mm-hmm. About mm-hmm. The films about Michael, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Michael, interestingly, isn't in that opening sequence because he very much starts out. Um, as separate from the family business and the the shadier the shadier parts of what the Corleone family stand for um so this is all happening in this kind of wood paneled office and interestingly that's also where the last scene of the film takes place In a, a kind of a beautiful full circle moment yes but um but yeah at this stage uh in the room i think we've got uh, apart from the the father and uh Brando, we've got um Robert Duval, who plays um Vito's adopted son Tom Hagen, and we've got uh Sonny, played by James Cannon, who's his, his uh, natural son. Um and there may be one or two other people, but like essentially it's the inner circle of Vito. Um but Michael is a war hero and he has not yet arrived to the wedding. So like moments later they're out there taking photos for for connie's wedding and vito delays the photograph because he's waiting for for michael to arrive and he and michael Mm -hmm. turns up and he's wearing his uh his military uniform with his medals on the front and he's he's there with his non- sicilian girlfriend Kay as well um and uh, michael's very clear like you know he's telling Kay this anecdote uh which is a beautiful moment about how his father made someone an offer that they couldn't refuse. Um and that offer was essentially that it, I'm gonna be paraphrasing it because I've not got the script in front of me, but either his brains or his signature would be on that check by the end of the hour. And uh the guy writes this check. <laughs> you know of course he does. <laughs> um, but but then Michael kind of ends that scene by saying, But that's my that's my family K, okay? that's not me. And so at the beginning of it yeah. Michael is very much outside of that shadowy world. And of course, as you say, the rest of the film is about him. Gradually, inch by inch, losing himself and losing his soul into that darker and, you know, more nefarious element of his family's history.
3: You
2: mentioning, like, uh, that moment when uh, Don Vito says that, like, we need Michael for the photo. I think that's a very clever way of uh, Francis and kind of like them telling us the importance of Michael to, to, to Vito. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that, he is this. He, he is. I don't, he's the black sheep of the family. Yet he is so so important that like he needs to be there. He needs to be there for the family. Yeah. And you, yeah, you you mentioned that um that st- that story that he tells Kay. And I, I I think it's basically near on the introduction to Michael as well. I think you get that moment yes. before then when Kay, Kay asks him about Luca Brazzi and what what he's doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He tells this this story.
4: Well, when Johnny was first starting out, he was signed to this personal service contract from the big band leader. And as his career got better and better, he wanted to get out of it. Now Johnny is my father's godson, and my father went to see this band leader, and he offered him ten thousand dollars to let Johnny go, but the band leader said no. So the next day, my father went to see him, only this time with Luca Brazzi. Within an hour, he signed a release for a certified check of $1,000. How'd he do that? My father made him an offer he couldn't refuse. What was that? Luca Brazzi held a gun to his head, and my father assured him that either his brains or his signature would be on a contract.
2: And like you said, he said that's 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 my family. That's 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 not me. But um, I I wanted to ask you what what do you make of the kind of introduction we get to different characters for, throughout this wedding? Because uh, I personally find it quite 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 fascinating. Whether it is kind of tertiary characters or they're very important, like Clemenza and Tessio mm. and stuff like that. What do, what do you what do you make of the way that the film introduces us to them through through the setting of this wedding?
1: Yeah, that's such a good question, and I, I think it kind of shows how masterful Coppola is in commanding the the setup of the wedding because that is a, a fairly long series of scenes. It's something in the region of thirty to forty minutes at the wedding. Yeah, um, but it, it never feels like it's aimless it's always moving character forward it's moving plot forward and the the characters are sketched out so quickly and so beautifully that you have no problem whatsoever in believing that these are real people with rich interior lives rich histories and rich interconnections between one another um so you we think of Fredo, for instance who is michael's older brother uh played by john casale and he kind of is quite drunk when he approaches the table um but Quite awkward as well, and you get a sense that he, this is a, a guy who is perhaps struggling to be himself, struggling to live up to his family's legacy. And that's all sketched out very, very quickly compared to like Michael's oh. very relaxed and confident um, and happy being separate from that stuff. Uh, and Tom Hagen, played by Robert Duvall, is again very interior, very controlled, but very smart, polite, formal. And then you know Santino, uh, Sonny, played by James can is off sleeping uh, with the his mistress with the bridesmaid while he you know he's telling uh-huh. his wife to look after the kids so he can go and you know fool around upstairs with the with the bridesmaid. And so like just these very quick moments, you get a complete sense of like, what who, what are the driving characteristics of these people? Yeah, and even Clemenza. I mean, Clemenza, I absolutely love as a character. And the first time you see him, he's. <laughs> Dancing his heart out, and he goes, Bring me wine. And he brings this jug of wine, like not a glass, like a, a full on jug. And he's just there, like this big, round, Sicilian guy, like full of life. um And yet, then, as of course, the film progresses, we realize he's an enforcer um and is responsible for, like, you know, getting blood under his fingernails more than once.
2: I i love that, like, even the introduction to a character like Paulie, mm. um, who obviously late, later becomes like uh an informant against the family like w- the first line you, you you hear him say is um something to the effect of like ah oh, 30 40 grand i'll, I'll, I'll put in that I'll, I'll put in that silk purse if it wasn't this family's wedding and like you kind yeah, of like yeah, yeah. again it's it's planting these great little seeds that you might not pick up on on the first time but like kind of yeah for like I think it's just beautiful storytelling. Like, you kind of, mm. uh, as an audience member, if if, if, if you're paying attention, you're going to pick up on that. And then when the Pauly stuff comes to light later on in the film, you're like, of course, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and there's, I love, what I love about the wedding is it's the small details. I know that Copler said, like, there's a, somebody, like, throws Pauly a couple of sandwiches. He's like, hey, a couple of gabagool, like, and he, he catches him. He's like, Francis, like, I remember that family weddings and he got his own dad to pick out the like to to orchestrate the music get the get the get the mm-hmm. band together mm-hmm. and like really re- like it it has a sense of hustle and bustle and like being mm-hmm. of uh, a Medi- mediterranean like yeah, ancestry myself like it, it it really reminds me of like parties and like christenings or weddings i went to like Mm-hmm. Greece, like growing up, and stuff like that, like some things definitely like don't change in certain cultures, and like yeah like yeah, even though this is like set in the forties, it's like that is yeah, it kind of captures that Mediterranean way of like all partying and like having fun mm-hmm. and like even down to like the costume design of like they they were very meticulous of like how people would look down to like like italian women wouldn't dress up for a wedding it's kind mm-hmm. of like do you know what i mean like it's that like nobody's really glammed up to the nines it's like yeah men would be in suits do you know what i mean but it's not like mm-hmm. a lot of the men were in suits anyway at that mm-hmm. time it's not like i don't know it's a lot more rustic and family mm-hmm. vibe than what you would expect a kind of lavish wedding of this What like yeah, multi-millionaires in the forties? Do you mean they're kind of like yeah? They they can they control New York and like it's it's I don't know it's it it feels it it feels real like it feels lived in. They feel like a family. It
1: really does. It really does, and it it kind of invites you into that as well. Like, uh, and it maybe pays dividends on that that maybe slightly problematic uh, comment from Paramount about they wanted the film to be ethnic to the core because I think Coppola brings that kind of sense of lived reality which. Would have been difficult for a director who was from a different heritage to have achieved you know it's a it's those incidental details which which create a sense of authenticity and reality to those those sequences um and of, of course like borne out um in terms of some of the casting as well like talia show uh is playing connie colione in the opening scene who is coppola's sister um and his father carmine coppola is playing the piano at one point in the film um you know and you know, uh, in the climactic moments, there is um, Connie's baby, uh, who in the movie is a male child called Michael Francis Rizzi, is in fact Sophia Coppola as a baby. Um, so there, there is a, a genuine sense of uh, family baked in to that whole that whole atmosphere, and I think it's just a, a wonderful juxtaposition and contrast between the the light and the life and the joy of a wedding and then the the very thinly disguised darkness in it which is just like part of the fabric of like uh, but we all know this man is a is a you know the head of a crime family and we all know that in that room he's arranging people to be beaten up or he's arranging um you know various illegal activities and maybe even arranging for people to be killed um but it somehow still feels warm and safe and familial. And it's this incredible balancing act of tone, which just feels completely real and completely completely authentic.
3: Well, yeah.
2: Do you, like, buy, like not buy into the family, but, like, do you empathize with the Corleones at all?
1: Yeah, 100%. 100%. Without ever condoning who... <laughs> yeah. Like, their decisions are anything. But, I mean, it's... <sighs> I think this is—it's it, this kind of in, weird emotional dissonance that it like, creates. I think in the audience, where on the one hand you think I would love to be at this party, like I would love to just like be uh, eating cannoli with uh, Clemenza, or, or I'd like lo- love to go and have a scotch with with Tom. You know, I would. It just seems like it would be um, this this fantastic community to be part of, but then. You know you equally oh i do anyway kind of recoil from the idea of having to sell your soul out to the the level that these guys do um and i as well i should probably say it it is kind of implicitly quite a patriarchal group as well like the the female characters we learn very quickly are kind of kept outside of that family business and and kept outside of those meetings where the men are talking about about what they're going to be doing and about their kind of criminal enterprises so you know, uh, Kay at this stage is still Michael's girlfriend rather than wife, so she doesn't, you know, would automatically have her access to that information anyway. But, you know, Talia Shire's character Connie is kept outside. We don't even really see the Don's wife beyond, like, you know, I don't think she has any speaking parts in the film. Um, and it is in the sense of this is a very much a man's world, um, telling, telling the story of men who both love their families but are also morally bankrupt.
2: Uh, and, and to your point of like Mama Corleone, which I, I believe Morgana King is credited as in this film as well. Mm-hmm. Like uh, one of the one of the lines that she does have is when okay. um, Connie and Carlo are arguing at the dinner table, and mm. Santino interrupts, and she says like, "Leave it, like don't get involved," which mm. again like really plays into that patriarchal system and that kind of thing of mm. i guess it's a cultural thing as well i know that uh other people have stated like when talking about the film that like italians in general like uh, as a rule like um, the, 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 like there, there is a kind of cultural thing of if anyone is arguing no matter if you are male or female you just don't get involved you know what i mean it's between mm-hmm. between them but it's very, especially the way that Carlo talks to Connie in that moment. I mm. think like he's telling us, mm. like "shut up" or something like that. It very much yeah. plays into how how this kind of society that they've built is. Yeah, it's very much geared up for this patriarchal system where it's like the men do what the men do and the the, the, the women stay at home so much. And,
1: yeah, yeah, for sure. Only I mean, because you know maybe it's more like with twenty twenty two eyes, but I think it would have been there for you know original audiences as well like when carlo tells connie to shut up it's it's a red flag that this is a guy who obviously doesn't respect his wife and is probably capable of something much worse and of course he is capable of much worse because he begins physically abusing her shortly afterwards um but but the way that the family resolve that is um that when San, santino finds out when sonny finds out he is the one who goes and kicks carlo's ass you know because he is defending his sister and he's got a hot temper, so he just absolutely beats seven bells out of him in the stream. (laughs) Um, But again, like, it's, it's so how do we solve violence against women? The men solve it by beating up other men. It's it's, Yeah, and I don't think, like, I I don't know if, I I don't really have a problem with the way this is portrayed because I don't think Coppola's endorsing any of this, but it's more like kind of being honest about it. This is just the way it is. Um, And we're going to tell that story and invite you to kind of have a view upon the these very flawed characters making a series of questionable choices um where you can perhaps empathize with them as people but like without agreeing with everything they do and i think it, it's uh yeah it's just a really interesting invitation into this kind of uh, very particular system uh, social system which the these characters exist within
2: yeah i think coppola has definitely played like a high wire act of like really really getting it right in playing that balance of like showing how like uh morally bankrupt they all are but like making you care just enough yes. that like yes. you you're invested in what happens to people and somewhat 100%. in some regards like because it is this like war of these other dare do wells and wrongdoers it's kind of like you do you somewhat root for them, like, do you know what I mean? Or, like, the yeah, wrongs that yeah. have been done to their family in regards to, like, uh, Luca Brazzi or, with, yeah, certain deaths in it. You're kind of like, oh, I want them to get, like, I'm not sure if that plays to, like, a kind of uh, <laughs> primeval thing inside of us, a primal, like, kind of thing of like i don't know, anger begets anger and stuff like that where you're like
1: mm. oh yes
2: uh, uh, yeah <laughs> i'm not sure what that says about me tim
1: <laughs> no but this is the thing is that i think revenge stories have an implicit um attractiveness because all of us want a world where justice takes place right we all want the bad guy to get it and the good guy to to win and um, so when, for example um uh, you know in the first act kind of basically concludes with an attempted assassination against the don um and um then the second act is is concerned largely with the retaliation from the Coliones against those that they perceive to have carried out this uh, this attempt on their father's life, um there is a big part of you, of course, which wants them to get those guys and and you're like, well, if anyone attacked my family, of course, my emotional reaction would be that I want vengeance like that. I think that's a natural human inclination, you know, regardless of how moral or not it is. Um, And I think because you have that 40-minute wedding scene, you are with these people, so you feel it. I know this guy's a gangster, but when he's shot repeatedly uh, and slumped over the hood of his car, you, you feel the emotional impact of that. And so, no, I absolutely agree that you're kind of invited into a place of empathy with that. I think that the trick is, of course, that you then see that revenge play out and you see, you see the the uh-huh. consequences of what that means for michael in particular who takes a very active role in carrying out that vengeance um and it leaves you with this sinking feeling of like yeah the the consequences of this kind of cyclical downward spiral <laughs> of of losing oneself in the darkness you know
2: yeah definitely definitely yeah so like as we yeah as we start to leave the wedding Obviously, we get to see the first of the the dominoes fall, as it were, in mm. uh, the Johnny Fontaine favor. He's asked John, mm-hmm. and that, that that is to to get him a, a role in a in a movie. Which I I love I love I love yeah I love this moment when Johnny Fontaine's asking him for a favor, and it's uh, mm-hmm. it very much plays because Al Martino, the actor who plays Johnny Fontaine, uh, I don't think that Marlon Brando. Really rated him as an actor, so when he delivered this line, he reacts uh, in a very particular way.
5: I don't know what to do? I don't know what to do. You can act like a man. What am I with do? Is this how you turn down a Hollywood melodrama that uh, cries like a woman? <laughs> what can I do? What can I do? What is that nonsense? Look
2: There's a lot of, uh, yeah, like uh, people have spoke on that, that uh, Marlon Brando actually slapped him in that mm. scene. Like, uh, I, I think, yeah, he's, he's kind of at his wits end of having to, to deal with somebody who he determined not to be such a great actor somewhat and kind of like uh, really guessing that kind of, is it Meisner, like give somebody something to react mm. to? And like, it mm-hmm. was <laughs> like, well, I've got to, I've got to fucking slap this guy right now. Cause I'm not really getting mm. anything, uh, uh, from mm. him. Uh, but yeah, like, um, I find that fascinating. And then I find obviously the film opens up from them, right? We get, we got Tom mm. Hagen sent to, to LA to talk to Jack Waltz, the head of the studio.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I think Jack Waltz, there's a, there's a couple of contenders for the guys who have very small roles in this film and and almost still the show and one of them is yeah john marley as jack waltz and i hmm. think there's let's just listen to the guy so we can hear hear, hear what a uh, what, what a character he is. Are
0: you trying to muscle me? Absolutely not. Now yeah, listen to me you smooth talking friend. son of a bitch. Let me lay it on the line for you and your boss whoever he is Donnie Fontaine will never get that movie. I don't care how many Dago Guinea Whop greaseball Goombas come out of the woodwork.
1: I'm German Irish.
4: Well let me tell you something my Kraut Mick friend I'm going to make so much trouble for you you won't know what
0: it The Walsh come a lawyer I have not threatened. I know almost every big lawyer in New York who the hell are you? I have a special practice I handle one client you have my
6: number i'll wait for your
1: call by the way i admire your pictures very much
2: <laughs> what do you make of this this kind of sequence and yeah and and kind of uh, john marley coming in with this kind of ah you see i'll make you a big star like, I, I, yeah. that, 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 that's, a, that's an
1: enduring line i have from this film
5: you gonna be a big star
1: yeah yeah i mean it's a big performance right um but yeah it it, and it i mean i'm a big fan of any film which has a element of being about filmmaking as well so films set around movie studios or films about making films you know it's kind of a a sweet spot for me i think what's interesting about jack waltz as a character and this this very brief subplot about johnny fontaine trying to get this lead role is it, it feels a bit symbiotic with the real life um pressures that paramount came under from the actual mob when they were trying to make the film yes so like um when you know the the godfather was rolling into production and you get uh production boss robert evans started getting anonymous threats um there were uh like warnings that if um, paramount didn't offer a bit of reciprocity back to the mafia there would be union troubles or worse um, there's like, you know, Gulf and Western, who are Paramount's parent company, they had to evacuate their Manhattan headquarters because of bomb scares. Producer Al Ruddy uh, heard that a car was following him around LA. So all this stuff was going on. And then it led to like um, Al Ruddy making a few concessions to like the real life mafia. Yes. So you had to pass the script to uh, the Colombo family boss, Joe Colombo. Um, and part of like that. That loose partnership was that there were a few of Colombo's associates were allowed to perform in The Godfather, one of whom is Lenny Montana, who plays Luca Brazzi. Um, and so you know, uh, which I, I love it as a bit of trivia. I don't know how I feel about it as a bit of reality, but um, you know, uh, it's it's astonishing. I mean, so like the scene, for example, when Luca Brazzi is um, he's talking to himself back in the wedding for a second. And and Kay's like, oh, Michael, what's that guy doing? And he's repeating his lines. They put that in there with Luke with uh, Luca Brasi repeating his lines because Lenny Montana is not an actor. Like he's a guy who yeah. had, <laughs> a a, had a role with the mob. He was a wrestler. He was a wrestler, and he was a and wrestler. Maybe-
2: yeah, he's so Lenny Montana. Yeah. I did I did a bit of research on it, and he's he's a really fascinating guy. And like, yeah, you are talking about like his he was a wrestler at one point, and. Some of the stuff he did for the mob, he had very interesting ways of causing destruction. So one of them was he would leave a candle outside of a cuckoo clock. So when the cuckoo would come out, the candle would fall, burn down the house. And another thing he would do is to tie tampons to the back of mice and light the tampon and send it into where he wanted to burn down, essentially. So, Mm. yeah, (laughs) he was a big big arsonist and, a big uh,
1: old arsonist yeah
3: yeah <laughs> but,
1: yeah i mean it's it's interesting isn't it though because like he there's that scene where he, he's talking to um Vito and he's fluffing his lines about like you know on the da- your daughter's wedding on the day of your daughter's wedding um and so you know that's a looks like a genuine fluff because lenny montana's not an actor he's a he's a enforcer right um yeah but yeah i mean to go back to your original question about jack waltz it feels interesting then that we have this whole subplot about the mob trying to exert pressure on jack waltz to take johnny fontaine in, um and I mean, it leads on to like probably one of the most infamous moments in the film which uh-huh. is the horse's head in the bed yeah cartoon
2: cartoon i'm not gonna race it i'm gonna send it out to stud yeah oh the jack <laughs> <laughs> I think John Marley's fascinating and back to your point as well of uh, Al Ruddy and the kind of concessions he had made to the mob one of them was that the film never says the word mafia and mm. uh, I, I, love, I love this little kind of piece of trivia is when they did a screening of the film uh, they, they were showing it to Al Ruddy for the first time and um, the film started obviously like, the title sequence and then Bonazera's face pops up and he just he just delivers the line. I believe in the mafia. And Al Ruddy <laughs> like shit his pants and then turned round to a room full of like crew members laughing because they had like just for that version had dubbed uh, the line just to, just to get one over on him because he obviously thought like that's it. The first line of the movie is, "I believe in the mafia." I, that uh, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be jumping. Te- you know I mean? I'm gonna be sleeping with the fishes myself after. Yeah, and and, and, and to your point of yeah, Joe Colombo reading the script. Apparently, like the, <laughs> he realised pretty quickly. Like uh, he, he didn't have like his reading glasses or something like that. Like uh-huh. told one of his like guys to read it, and he's like, "Well, why do you want me to read it?" And they're like, "Al Ruddy's." Kind of gone on record, saying that uh I knew that they weren't going to read it, and we were probably we were probably all right to some degree with 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 with, with what we were doing here that and i think I think they even he, he had to offer them um something to do with like the 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 first day's profits were donated to a charity of their core like the, of mm. their choosing and stuff like that, and again it was all kind of eventually like on good reason like forgotten about i think which is probably mm. probably for the best because i think like i don't know this film having having the mob pressure is one thing but then obviously uh financing the mob mm. i guess would be a whole different thing altogether and yeah that kind of the, it because uh, obviously yeah this film was shot in new york for yeah. a lot of it on yeah. on coppola's like um instruction and kind of pleading um it took them a while to get a lot of the locations because the, the colombo family had kind of got gone around and i think they had i don't know why i hadn't written it down but like uh or it's escaped my mind but it's called like the anti or like yeah the the italian american league or something like that they were called so mm-hmm. it's basically uh a way of seeming legit and i think Joe Colombo had created it because of the bad press that the FBI had put out there against his name. Okay, so it kind of created this this somewhat charity company to like be like, oh, we're we're all for the for the the, the justice of the Italian American name, which is basically you can't say anything bad about the mob, otherwise you're stereotyping mm. Italian Americans. So yeah, yeah, a, yeah, a lot of um through that had kind of infiltrated businesses, homeowners, and stuff like that. And uh, I think like some of the houses they used, like one of the guys was like, "I'll do it if the production agreed to pay for the roof of my house to be fixed and stuff like that." Mm-hmm. And like uh, once kind of our 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 Ruddy had made those concessions, like uh, they they found that New York opened up to them. Like everywhere it was like yeah. Come on, film wherever the hell you want.
1: Yeah, that is really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and it kind of adds a, adds that weird meta element to the whole Jack Waltz sequence. You know where, yes, where Tom Tom is subtly, well, initially subtly putting pressure on, uh, putting pressure on uh, Jack Waltz, and it has one of the the most chilling lines in the film as well. I think where. Uh, waltz blows up over dinner and basically says that johnny fontaine is never going to get that part and um he's shouting and he's kind of almost in tom's face and tom just finishes his meal finishes his drink and says thank you very much for your time i'm going to go back to uh don corleone he is a man who insists on hearing bad news immediately (laughs) do you think (laughs) something bad's coming your way son and uh, indeed it does in and that right soon
2: well yeah let's i i, I want to play a clip uh, it's probably not the best audio clip but it's when jack Walt discovers what's lurking in his bed i wanted to play that is that music and the way that it kind mm. of it's, it's like a horror film right it's like a kind mm. of it's like it's like a a carousel kind of going out of control in the way that the music is playing and it's overlapping using that, that that element from the theme that and like it sounds like it's speeding up and like it sounds weirdly discordant and I don't know. Yeah. H- horrible. Do you know what I mean? And like, yeah, for the for the yeah. the horror that it, it shows with the the horse's head. in, in Yeah, his bed, which which was a real horse's head as well. A, r-
1: a real head, was, man. Yeah,
2: <laughs> from a from a dog food company, which like I guess I don't know. People should be questioning what's going into their dog food. <laughs>
1: And then it was the 70s. It was a different time. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, I'd like to think that we <laughs> haven't got horses going into dog food nowadays. But yeah, no, I mean, it's a great sequence. And it's that sense of Jack waking up and just gradually realizing what's like. He's waking up, something feels a bit weird. And he, maybe his hands are a bit wet, his feet are a bit wet. And he just pulls the sheets back. And he's like, what's, what's this? It's, it's blood. His blood is everywhere. And he just pulls the sheets back. And there is this real horse's head there and he's just been bragging to Tom that that horse was worth what was it like just over half a million dollars like 600,000 dollars or something so you know it's a a fairly and it, again it's in this beautiful mansion in Hollywood as well so this is again this kind of juxtaposition of of lush palatial surroundings like what should be the highest civility and this utter brutality um yeah it's a great it's a great moment
2: and it's yeah it's it's something that has become iconic right Mm -hmm. and like it's kind of it's in everything from like i don't know it's referenced all the time i think there's 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 like a simpsons clip that that lisa like wakes up in the morning and there's like a a stuffed horse in her bed and stuff like that and it's Mm. it's one of those things that even if you haven't seen the film it kind of is like you you, you know that moment Or yeah. again it's like like what you said about the uh don don Vito like uh impression like it kind of lives rent free for a lot of people like that, that yeah that, that moment which i think is is indelible to what a classic this film is
1: yeah that's it. and i think like there are so many of those moments as well. Like I, I, I think you you could list somewhere in the region region of uh, maybe ten to twenty classic scenes, which are are in there. Not all, not all like big grandstanding moments, like perhaps the horse's head are, but moments which are just so expertly choreographed, um, um, and done. And I think like one of the next key ones uh, after like the assassination attempt on on uh Tom Vita, which comes shortly after the, the head sequence, and we realise that there is this uh this Turkish narcotic smuggler called Solonzo who's uh come into New York. Um and Michael realizes that Solonzo, Solonzo and uh McCluskey, who's the uh chief of police or police captain, sorry, police captain, are kind of in cahoots together and arranges to go and assassinate both of them and again like that sequence is just a masterclass in perfection uh, in perfectly ratcheting tension um and and character development and and i mean the film is just full of these 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 sequences which are absolutely perfect
2: what's fascinating about the Salopso and like uh, mccluskey assassination as well is the fact that that was a scene that was filmed in the first week.
3: Wow! Of, like
2: principal photography, and that was at a time as well when Francis Ford Coppola was under the impression, and he had heard word that they were potentially going to fire him. Like they yeah, were yeah. not happy with what he was doing at that time, and it's kind of like gone on record saying, like, I had it right there, like, and he knew that as well that he needed to sell Pacino to Paramount as well. And he was like, Mm. if I can get this scene done in the first week, I can sell them what I'm doing and I can sell them Pacino as an Mm. actor because, and it's, it's crazy to think that they had any doubts with what Francis was doing. If like Mm. he delivered, like you said, like that, that moment in the in the restaurant is just a masterclass intention, right? It's mm. like and and it, even before then, that that moment at the the hospital as well when Yeah, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. Michael Michael twigs that um that yeah, like they might be well, there's definitely people coming to uh coming to kill. On he's like shit mm. like and he's like rushing around and mm. what is, again uh, george lucas comes into this is he said to francis when he was kind of cutting he's like you need some shots of empty corridors just to and like some sounds of footsteps just to really ramp up the tension in mm. in those mm. sequences and they found them like they were like shit we haven't got that like i don't feel i didn't actually film that and those moments of the empty corridors are made up of the ends of takes so it would have been like yeah it would have been like once once al pacino was out of frame they were like oh we'll just use those we're just like it's the same corridors he's walked down it's obviously the exact same shot so it's got that it's got that fascinating mirroring of like yeah, you know, they're walking the exact same steps, like that, to the framing of it and stuff like that. But yeah.
1: Yeah. Like, you, no, it's... It,
2: it, it builds that tension. And I think like um, in, in Coppola's notebook, he mentions Hitchcock quite a lot. And I think mm-hmm. like that, that moment in the, in the hospital has kind of, does have this kind of, I don't know, Hitchcockian, like, and I guess, something that uh brian de palma one of uh coppola's contemporaries would think is mm-hmm. has a voyeuristic nature to it especially like you're not knowing who's going to be walking down that corridor like mm-hmm. uh, as an audience member your heart's in your throat like until you're there with michael right until until you realize it's enzo the baker boy you know like <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: no it's so good isn't it you, you're completely right um and then they there's uh that moment then where michael uh michael goes out the the front of the hospital with enzo they move uh Vito to another room and then they go outside and he's put your hand in your pocket like you've got a gun he rough. He pulls up yeah. enzo's collar pulls up his own collar and then this this uh car with uh persons unknown rolls up outside and Michael slowly puts his hand inside his jacket as if reaching for a pistol uh, and they pull away because they, they don't want a confrontation and it's just it's absolutely perfect and th- there's a nice little um coda to that sequence where Enzo goes to light a cigarette and he's, he's like you know absolutely cacking it because he realizes how close they came and he, he's shaking and then Michael I think it lights his cigarette for him and his hand is steady And it's this beautiful bit of just a very small character bit where you're like, actually, when the chips are down, Michael is somebody who can hold his cool and make strategic decisions. And it just beautifully seeds that actually he, he, uh, even at at this stage, he is is still not part of the the mob element of the family. He's there because he loves his dad. But it perfectly seeds that he has those qualities that will make him a great don. Or certainly a ruthless don, um, as the the final final act will bear witness to.
2: Yeah, and I think that um, uh, like b- b- before then, obviously, like we'd had doubts from mm. Sonny if Mike could do it right, like whether mm-hmm. whether mm-hmm. he could, or like no, it's after that, after that, like and yeah, and I think that is a perfect seeding. Uh, that, that that that's that's in my notes about like but Michael, and I've, I think like people around him forget that obviously he's been out like fighting in yeah in, in World War 2 and stuff like that and he's, he's a war he's, hero he's right to, yeah he's had to kill people and there's yeah there's a there's that exchange between um Mike and sonny I, I I love I love when you when Michael decides like he 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 comes up with the plan of what to do with Solozzo and Buskins mm. really like in, in in quite a small succession, we get these really interesting scenes where you see the coldness of Michael. Whether it's the, the frosty goodbye, as with Kay, when he's mm. kind of like you start to see those seeds of who he is going to become. When he's kind of like you've got to go. Like she's, mm. she keeps pressing him, like when will I see you? And he's like, you need to go back to New Hampshire like i've got to do what i've got to do and for all we at this moment all all we know is that he's just going to see his dad at Mm. the hospital but it's like michael i don't know it's like had michael made that decision then that he might Mm. like do you know what i mean like that that the this life might actually be for him after all
1: yeah yeah it's difficult to say isn't it because it's so in interior I mean, I kind of wonder whether he was trying to just protect Kay and being like, stuff at the moment is really bad. I don't want you anywhere near it. But he certainly does come off as quite cruel and dismissive with her, and mm-hmm. that's clearly a, a dynamic in their relationship which is only repeated um, at various other points after that, because um, yeah, he he protects his dad at the hospital, McCluskey, and his cops rock up. McCluskey assaults Michael, and then Michael comes up with the the plan that he is going to be the one to kill solozo and mccluskey in the diner um yeah and at that point really that's the that's the the, the moment i guess where michael crosses the threshold from being civilian into into mobster because they even they even talk about mike as being a civilian in in a scene earlier to that like don't worry like Solozo's people aren't going to come for you because you're a civilian um but that's the point where he yeah, steps over no, the line you, you right so
2: you see, i wanted to play a clip of of, of mike talking to to the kind of the, the war room basically right aren't they the kind of like yeah, the, yeah. The underbosses and and sonny acting as 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 Don uh, for the time being cuz i just think it's like you're saying it's that interior aspect of him kind of the first signs that it becomes exterior somewhat
4: wait yeah. can't wait I don't care what Soletzo says about a deal. He's going to kill Pop. That's it. That's the key for him. Gotta get Mike is right. right. Let me ask you something, Professor. I mean, what about this McCluskey? Huh? What do we do with this copy? They want to have a meeting with me, right? It will be me, McCluskey, and Soletzo. Let's set the meeting. Get our informers to find out where it's going to be held. Now, we insist it's a public place, a bar, a restaurant, some place where there's people, so I feel safe. They're gonna search me when I first meet them, right? So I can't have a weapon on me, then. But if Clemenza can figure a way they have a weapon planted there for me. Then I'll kill them both. <laughs> <laughs>
5: hey,
4: what are you gonna do? Nice college boy, huh? Didn't want to get mixed up in the family business?
0: Huh? Now you want to gun down a police captain? Why, because he slapped you in the face a little bit? huh? What do you think, this is the army where you shoot them a mile away? You got to get them close like this and bada-bing! You blow their brains all over your nice cyber-league suit.
4: Come
1: Ma, You're
4: taking this very personal.
0: Tom, this is business and this man is
4: taking it very, very personal. Where does it say that you can't kill a cop? Come on, Mikey. Tom, wait a minute. I'm talking about a cop that's mixed up in drugs. I'm talking about a, a, a dishonest cop. A crooked cop who got mixed up in the rackets and got what was coming. That's a terrific story we have newspaper people on the payroll, don't we, Tom? They might like a story like that. They might. They just might. It's not personal, Sonny. It's strictly business.
2: I think that that line, that it's not personal, Sonny, it's it's strictly
3: business, is very much like the key of who Michael becomes, right? Like, if, like who
2: Michael is from then on out.
3: Mm. I don't know. He mm.
2: he 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 steps further and further away from the personal. Do you know what I mean? Like, he, he, apart from getting hit by the thunderbolt in Sicily, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and and his whole his whole dalliance with Apollonia, it is all it's all business for him. Even when he yeah even when he comes back to America and he's speaking to Kay, talking about getting married, stuff like mm-hmm. that. It's, it's all business. And it's its chilling. It's chill, like, yeah. Especially like after seeing part two as well, like who Michael becomes in life. The fact that the, those two films were made in a space of two years, it's kind of like, like they obviously had no idea they were making the second part when they made the first so many like things that like seem to just set up moments in that later part and there's there's mm. there's, there's, there's like it's like pacino knew he would have to go to this next place afterwards it, do you know what i mean it's not it's not just it doesn't feel as as contained or well, that might just be the the majesty of part two and the fact that they managed to like Make it feel like it is this, yeah. It, 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 is, it is. one and the same. It is part two. It's not the Godfather two, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I mean that that coldness that Michael demonstrates feels very congruent with one of the key ideas behind the Godfather films, which is this kind of the the death of the old ways and this kind of rise of new capitalism in in America. Um, like we should say, Salozo is a character is well, we kind of touched on it lightly but he's he's bringing in heroin into new york and there's a bit of a division uh-huh. um among the families about whether this is a, a business they want any part in or not Um uh, like l- later on Vito recovers from his injuries and makes a speech to the five families about his view is it's different um that you could put it in a different category to things like gambling and racketeering but um The the reality is that heroin is coming into the city and it's here to stay. And you know that's kind of mirrored in the fact that the Corleones are looking about getting into Vegas, and it's mirrored in the fact we're now post-war, and and it's mirrored in like the fact that Michael kind of becomes really an incredibly ruthless businessman as well. So there's all this kind of social satire about the the replacing of that warm family vibe that you got at the wedding with this kind of incredibly ruthless cold-hearted uh kill you as soon as look at you kind of literal cutthroat capitalism you know um which finds Mm. perhaps its absolute apex at the at the end of godfather part two which i won't spoil here but um i mean that that very chillingly paints a picture about where that that road will lead you if you follow it to its logical logical conclusion
2: definitely definitely and um yeah let's let's talk about that scene um we'll, we'll we'll rattle through some of the the other stuff but i feel like a key we'll pick out some key scenes and one of them is that that moment in the um in the restaurant when he sat down with um salozo and mccluskey and again like for me i don't want to put words in your mouth tim but like it's just like the sound design mm-hmm. which i believe water merch had a hand in and 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 the fact that they choose not to subtitle the um yeah, yeah, the yeah. conversation between salozo and michael which i believe in the, the the new life yeah the the new re-release of it might have had subtitles can't remember mm. cuz i saw it the, the cinema and the 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 blu-ray i think is out now uh, I, I'm not paid to say that apparently uh, <laughs> nothing in regards to this film but yeah you can yep. you can buy it or you can buy many of the other versions that have been released of this film there's a lot of them uh, but yeah um, I think choosing not to have the top puts you in the headspace of Michael because it's almost like an element of like you don't even need to know what is being hmm. said it's almost like michael's not listening especially once he comes out of the the bathroom and he's got the gun and the way that the sound design almost takes over from the speech and all you can hear is that train rattling um, above mm. and you can kind of just hear the clinking of glasses and everything just like overwhelms him just up to that point where he's got to pull the trigger on both of them right amenza said make sure what Make sure you do two a piece he's kind of been yeah he's been prepped of how he's how he's got to got to kill these guys
1: yeah for sure i mean you've you've mentioned the sound design there and i think um the the sound of the near nearby um subway train or the train like the over overground train comes and goes like these rolling waves of nausea um, and it, it does this beautiful job of like you said putting you in Michael's headspace like it that stuff's not subtitled because he's kind of almost disassociating a little bit he's not focusing on what's happening because he just feels sick to his stomach that he knows he's gonna have to you know kill these two men in cold blood and then like the the sound is coming and going and um, Clemenza's given him that that instruction about you come out of the, the toilet with the gun blazing to a piece. Uh, let your hand fall to your side and drop the weapon and just walk out. And immediately, Michael doesn't follow that advice. He walks out of the bathroom slowly, and he sits back down. Oh. And immediately, as an audience member, you're thinking, oh my gosh, like Michael, what are you doing? You're, you're deviating from the very <laughs> simple instructions which Clemenza gave you. Um, but he just pauses for a second, and then he, it's like, bang. What in the head for Solozo." One in the throat for McCluskey, another one in his head, and then he runs out almost with the gun, and then chucks it at the last minute. But it, yeah. yeah, it's just like this. It's a it's a, a masterclass. Just what I feel like I'm saying a lot today, but you know, it is of like ranking up the tension, and then when the violence comes, it's characterful. You know, it's not just like, hey, let's just have some you know brains on the on the wall or anything. or that there are it's driven very much from the emotional reality of Michael's character um, and how he's feeling and what we learn about him through what he does. Um, It's absolutely incredible cinema.
2: Yeah. And I think what's, what's great about it is the fact that
1: you're told like
2: two, two times before kind of how it's going to play out. Do you know what I mean? Like he's being Mm -hmm. prepped again of how you need to do it. Clemenza kind of gives him the, the pep talk when he shows him the gun and, or he's going to go. He's told once again how it's going to go down. So, as an audience, you have kind of you've got this expectation of how the scene is going to play out, and then when it throws you mm-hmm. a curveball, like you said, of of him not coming out guns blazing, it is a real like sideswipe of like, "Fuck, this isn't going to go how I thought it was like going to." It's it's clever. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a ma- amazing seeding of like uh, pull back a reveal almost. Of, uh, yeah
1: and you're just worried for him you're worried like you don't if you don't follow the plan what's gonna happen to michael um but yeah yeah
3: (laughs) so um let's yeah let's move move
2: move on through the plot it's gonna say there's there's a lot to get through but i guess the the next the next kind of uh big moment in this is um when michael yeah like moves to sicily right we kind mm-hmm. of get this prolonged sequence of him uh kind of just wandering the sicilian hills with these two bodyguards so what do you what do you make of the whole sicily section in this in, in this film tim
1: i mean i think for me this is the parts which work slightly less well um uh-huh. only slightly and so yeah you know, i still think the film overall is you know a masterpiece but this is where we learn that uh Corleone is a village in in sicily um and so that's where vito gets his surname from um and this is where we meet as you mentioned Apollina, which is a a, a young young woman who he falls in love with but i mean I still totally buy into a lot, a lot of the stuff, in terms of linking back to the the old world, and Michael kind of falling, falling in love not just with Apollina, but with the, if you like the, that kind of heritage. You know, it kind of makes sense that he comes back as a as a, as a man who's more in touch with that that history when he later does return back to New York. Um, but yeah, I mean, like it's it's fairly. Fairly broad stroke stuff, like he meets Apollina, he falls in love at first sight effectively there's There's a fantastic scene where he um essentially asks her father for permission to court her, it, it kind of <laughs> trades these bees between comedy and then like Michael being very confident as well, like you know, but also like you know as an audience member, you're like, well dude, like you were you the bruise in your cheek from when McCluskey struck you is still there. So this is only, like, weeks yeah. later. Have you forgotten, Kay? <laughs> like, and he has, <laughs> apparently. He has moved on pretty quick from that. Maybe because he doesn't know when he's going to go back, I guess. Uh, not, not excusing him. It's, it's still pretty quick, mate. But, um, uh, yeah. What? He falls in love with her, and, yeah, then she gets blown up.
2: What I feel... What, I, I feel the same as you with the Sicily stuff. I kind of like it slightly less than the, kind of, New York set stuff. But, like again on on rewatch and having watched part two quite recently as well i love that there's stuff that like when michael and the two bodyguards are walking through um corleone there is a shot that is mirrored in two so it's as they are entering uh there's like this kind of town square almost and that Mm. is used again when Young Vito is escaping from Mm. Corleone, but like you kind of like, yeah, as Michael is entering, it's day, Vito is leaving Corleone, it's night, and it's kind of Mm -hmm. it's beautiful. And like Francis Coppola says, like in all the Sicily kind of sequences, and all of them, they they reuse like the same locations to kind of again, I think it's to create that familiarity, like not just like for, for. like for the character, for the audience as well. Do you know what I mean? Like you kind of, yeah. It mm-hmm. feels like Michael. Michael very much has gone, gone home. Do you know what I mean? And it's, like, it, yeah. it's almost yeah. like I don't know. It's his gap year to awaken in him. <laughs> What's to do with the rest of his life? <laughs> somewhat, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? like, Some of us went like, uh, okay.
1: backpacking when we went on a gap year, but Michael, like you know, killed two people and ran away to Sicily. I mean, it's almost the same thing.
2: Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a different, different way of life. So, um, I don't know. Yeah, like uh you said about the comedy with with the the cafe owner. I love the a moment I love in that is when he realizes that Michael is proposing that he mm. he lifts up his he lifts up his suspenders and like fixes them yeah, yeah, as yeah. If, like oh it's bit it's business time now. I've got to like I've I've, I've got to get I've, I've got to get serious here. So. The suspenders are coming
3: up. Um, That's um it. so yeah, there's back to back to New York and we
2: see that um so yeah, we get to the scene where Sonny Carlo have their have their like tussle in the street. Um this feels like a good opportunity. Talk about James Kahn and what, what what do you make of James Kahn in this film,
1: Tim? I mean I like him a lot. I think he, is, I mean, the performance of Sonny is in some ways the more one note of the characters, and certainly of the brothers. I think uh, Tom, Fredo, and Michael um, all have a bit, they're a bit more fleshed out. But what's interesting about Sonny is that he he's, although he's perhaps less rounded as a character, his defining characteristic that he's a hothead who's very aggressive is kind of so important to the, the contrast about what kind of leader he he becomes um and ultimately that that becomes his downfall so after michael flees to sicily um santino becomes the de facto head of the house um and then you know he he confronts carlo and beats him but then ultimately when he finds out that carlo has continued to um assault connie it's when then Sonny rushes out to confront and possibly kill carlo again that's when he's then fatally ambushed so um, i think james Kahn does a, a great great job with with that character and despite of it perhaps being a little bit new less nuanced as a character i think his performance is so strong he just really you still really believe in him as a person
2: yeah i know that james Kahn as well spent a lot of time with kind of guys he grew up with and kind of uh guys with mob to, like Mobsters basically. He he hung mm. out with mobsters and I know that him and uh Gianni Russo like kind of didn't see eye to eye on a lot of stuff and um there's there's a story of them kind of whilst the filming of this both went on separate nights out and kind of ended up getting in a tussle in real oh, life really? as well. Which wow is, yeah really yeah, both with kind of different mob families and kind of James Khan being a bit uh brash and like he, he kind of almost was living in in sunny skin and he's he mentioned as well that the the person he found the character through like who sunny was going to be is don rickles the comedian
3: oh like, wow okay that
2: that that's who Sonny's gonna be and like if you kind of that's why Sonny kind of has this like wise talking always like you know what I mean, like always kind of has has something to say, like really like hey mm. like he yeah he he as you said, he probably is like the the more one note character, and I know that he had problems as well I think there was stuff of Santino's character cut from the film as well, and he he said to Robert Evans on uh, the night of the premiere he's like where 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 the fuck is where the fuck is my scenes like you you mm. <laughs> you ruined me in this film, which mm. like so yeah, I know that he he wasn't best pleased with kind of the, a lot of the Santino stuff being excised from the final film. But I think, like you said, he does a fantastic job of, with what he does in this, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there, there isn't a bad performance in, in the bunch, though they're, they're all fantastic in their various roles.
2: So let's, yeah, let's, uh, yeah. What other scenes would you like to discuss, Tim? We don't have to go through this scene by scene because we, we'd, we'd be, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm conscious of your time. I'm conscious of my time.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, you, you could, it, we we could, um, to do this film justice, we absolutely would do that. But um, yeah, I mean, I guess like the, the big couple of scenes I would pull out still would be um, the, the baptism scene um at the at the very end of the film, so like Michael goes awesome. to Sicily Apollina is assassinated in in an attempt on both of their lives um and Michael returns to um to New York. he reconnects with Kay and persuades her to to marry him and Michael then uh rises to become the the godfather Don. Vito sadly passes away while playing with his uh, one of his grandchildren, um, and again, like a really beautiful, beautiful scene that we could talk about that one as well, I guess. But um, yeah, Michael becomes the the new head of the Corleone family, and he makes it after his father's funeral. He makes it his first order of business to wipe out all of his enemies in in yeah. one one single blow essentially um and it's a, a magnificent sequence which is intercut with the the baptism of connie and carlo's child uh who's also named michael where uh, michael is reciting these kind of catholic prayers about how he renounces satan and all of his work and it's then intercut with Michael absolutely not renouncing Satan, (laughs) and (laughs) kind of very much buying into the kind of the lifestyle of uh, murder and um, deception, where he sets up something in the region of five, six, seven assassinations that just unfold uh, one after another, Um, and it's incredibly powerful. It's it's moving, You, you know you see all these characters that we've been introduced to separately, like the heads of the different families. We see Mo Green from Vegas take one in the eye. Um, you see a lot of the, the guys carrying out the assassinations. Uh, well, certainly Clemenza's there. Um, take, you know, carry it out. And then the the whole sequence kind of culminates them back at the the Corleone family compound where um, Tessio, who we haven't spoken about much, but Tessio is another... Uh, another uh, uh, advisor if you like right. yeah, oh, yeah, yeah yeah exactly M- middle manager i guess he's say, in a, in a uh-huh. customer service kind of terms but he, he was the one who betrayed them and he's kind of like the last on the hit list and like there's this incredible moment where he's going out to the car thinking that he's still like gonna be able to pull this thing off and um tom Hagen just says oh you know i'm not gonna go with you and all these guys kind of surround tessio and tessio just realizes it's over and he's going to die um and you, you don't even see it you just see him walk off into into I the love, car i
2: love i love the line he says to tom hagan as well where he says well i've, I've got it right here actually
5: don't make it was only business i always liked him
6: he understands that
5: excuse me sir. Tom, can you get me off the hook for old times' sake? Can't do it, Sally.
2: There's something like beautifully poignant to that. Like, mm. can you get me mm. off the hook this last time? Which uh, is a line that is uh, recycled in Rushmore, uh, which <laughs> I guess Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson would have written into the script, knowing that Jason. Should yeah. Be saying, is francis ford coppola's uh nephew uh when max fisher is in guggenheim's office uh played by the amazing brian cox which again is fantastic because uh, obviously succession has uh a lot of uh, godfather parallels but yeah mm-hmm. when he's in his office uh max fisher says to him um can you can you let me off the hook this slice listen it's one time for old times, sake, amazing, which uh is a, a beautiful chef's a little
1: moment, oh. yeah, yeah, no, you're right. It's, it is very moving as well because it's this again, this, this juxtaposition between civility and respect and, and nightmarish horror. Like this man's going to go off, probably to be garroted, and uh, mm. he goes off straightening his suit. Um, it's yes, yeah, it's, it's a fantastically and beautifully understated moment, um, yeah and this kind of ultimately then sets up the the last kill of the film which is where carlo um so connie's Uh husband then has a a conversation with uh, michael back in the corleone inner sanctum in in the office kind of area or the anti-office just outside um and michael essentially says to Carlo, I know you were behind Santiano's, Santiano's killing. Um and I'm not gonna kill you because you're my you know, I'm not gonna widow my sister. I just want you to be honest with me. Um and Carlo admits it and he thinks he's gonna get flown out to new Vegas, just so stuff can cool off. And he gets into the, the car and Clemenza's sitting behind him and that's all she wrote, man. He just get some piano wire around the neck and it's game over (laughs) um but yeah i mean it's again it's beautifully portrays michael as this guy with like basically he is now a cold-blooded killer he's willing to do whatever he wants whatever he needs to do to uh both for business because like you know that that line from tessio again it's only business again it's kind of satirizing the the ruthlessness of capitalism. But I think Michael is kidding himself when he keeps on talking about stuff being only business. He's killing some of these people because of what they did. Like he kills he kills Carlo because of what he did to his, his brother. Um and yes. uh, especially
2: he, after especially after Vito had kind of said he foregoes all of that. Mm. And he's I guess he's gone gone against his own father's wishes as well, of like kind of keeping the peace yep. between the five families. This feels like it's something that is is in Michael he's like yeah yeah and and he's, he's even like he's he said it to Kay right he's like the moment he comes back from Sicily you see the gears of manipulation working when he says yeah, yeah, to Kay, yeah. within 5 years the family's going to be legit and you can you can almost like see it in his eyes like when he's talking to her about like getting married mm-hmm. and having a kid it's like he's thinking of the family and the legacy from here on out he's not thinking about what is best for her and what is best for him? He's thinking what is best for the Corleone family. What is best for this crime family? Um,
3: yeah. yeah, yeah. I find
2: absolutely. it. I find, I find. I find it all. And uh, even even again, like the 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 favor that um, he asks of Johnny Fontaine as well, where he's kind of like he's put the squeeze because he wants to make this move to Las Vegas and kind of says, "I want you to." Um, i want you to sign on for five appearances a year and like do the same for some of your hollywood friends and stuff like that Mm. Um, he's kind of said already like we're we're buying the hotels and that's even before mo green has a chance to come in the room who again mo green is a
3: fantastic character i just i just want to play a little clip of mo green just because just because i like it tim
4: Hello, fellas. Everybody's here. Freddy. Tom? Good to see you, Mike. How are you, Mo? All right. You got everything you want? The chef cooked for you special. The dancers will kick your tongue out, and your credit
5: is good. Drug chips for everybody in the room so they can play in the house. Yeah.
4: My credit good enough to buy you out. <laughs> buy me out. Casino. The hotel. Corleone family wants to buy you out. Your only family wants to
5: buy me out. No, I buy you out. You don't buy me out.
4: Your casino loses money. Maybe we can do better.
5: You think I'm skimming off the top, Mike?
4: You're unlucky. <laughs> <laughs> you goddamn guineas really
5: make me laugh.
4: I do you a favor and take Freddie in when you're having a bad time, and then you try to push me out. Wait a minute. You took Freddie in because the Corleone family bankrolled your casino because the Molinari family on the coast guaranteed his safety. Now, we're talking business. Let's talk business. Yeah, let's talk business, mate. First of all, you're all done.
5: The Corleone family don't even have that kind of muscle anymore. The Godfather's sick, right? You're getting chased out of New York by Barzini and the other families. What do you think is going on here? You think you can come to my hotel and take over? I talked to Barzini. I can make a deal with him and still keep my hotel.
4: Is that why you slapped my brother around in public? Oh, no, that, that, that was nothing, Mike. Now, no, uh, no, Moe didn't mean nothing by that. Sure, he flies off the handle once in a while, but, but Mo and me were good friends, right, Mo? huh? I got a business to run. I got to kick asses sometimes to make a run right. We had a little I argument love, for you I, night, so I had to straighten him run. out. Uh,
2: uh,
4: you straightened my <laughs> I
2: brother was, out. I was, I, was,
4: I was grinding He was banging
2: cocktail waitresses two at yeah. a time. Players couldn't right. get a drink at the table. And I think that, What's wrong that, with you? That, that, that scene is indicative and kind of... Shows that Michael is in power. Kind of I leave for New York mirrors that line that Tom
4: Think Hayes. about a price. It kind
6: of about do you know yeah. who I am? I'm Mo Green. I, I made my bones when you were going out with cheerleaders. Wait a minute. leaving in the morning.
2: Oh my God, my you have my deal. Let's get it done. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: It's
2: kind of chilling around that 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 part of the film. Right? It is.
1: Yeah, absolutely,
2: absolutely. What do you think of the closing moments of this film, Tim? And kind of how? Um, yeah how we're kind of left on this 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 somewhat cliffhanger but definitely it acts as like, almost like a conclusion right of of of, of this contained mm. story somewhat
1: yeah no i mean we kind of flagged it up a little bit earlier that the the very last scene happens in the uh the don's office as the very first scene does um uh only here um michael is confronted by first connie and then by kay accusing him of murdering carlo um who we know that he you know he's guilty of that um but the the absolute apex of that moment is where um michael says to to kay never ask me about my business and she presses and presses him and he says okay well this one time this one time i'll answer you no i did not kill him and she believes him, and she hugs him and leaves the room. Um, and then as she turns to look back at him, we see um, various heavies and uh, other mobsters coming into the room, and they, they kiss his hand out of respect. And one of them walks towards the door and closes the door, and we just see the door closing and putting a barrier between Kay and Michael. And yes. we roll credits, and it, it's it's a great symbol of how she there's this look on uh, diane keaton's face her performance here is incredible where she realizes he is lying um and the michael that she fell in love with is is gone or certainly transformed into this ruthless killer um and that michael who said at the very beginning i'm not my family has become in, if anything, more ruthless, more dangerous, more violent than his father ever was. Um and yeah, Fade to Black man. That's that's, that's where we land.
2: Yeah, and I I I like that the final person you see is Al Neary as well, somebody who becomes like a lot more prominent in the second film. Kind of doesn't really get an introduction in this film. And kind of like I don't know, he's surrounding himself now with these somewhat more Dangerous people, and it's Mm. yeah, it's quite. I think I think the film, it's a it's a masterpiece. It really is. Yeah, I rarely ever use that term. I think it's it's a masterpiece, and yeah, like I feel like I could I could talk to you about this film. And anyone listening who feels like I just want to say this now that that like we haven't done this film justice, get in touch. But at the same time, this is a film I can assure you that will be talked about a lot on this podcast so don't worry yeah. i'll revisit this whenever i Absolutely. can just to kind of we we now yeah yeah maybe this will eventually become a godfather minute by minute podcast
1: that would be amazing know, man point, yeah. So. Yeah, let's do it.
2: <laughs> so let's um let's wrap this up as i do with all these chats and uh what would be the perfect wine pairing for the godfather tim
1: so in terms of whether it's bottom shelf medium shelf or top shelf right so you yeah,
2: well me, yeah, yeah a, a want yeah
1: yeah yeah let's let yeah yeah oh sorry i'm kind of messing up the format so i mean if, if we're talking any kind of alcohol i would be like it has to be like a whiskey right that you're drinking in a mahogany room alone with uh-huh. a cat i think it is what it has to be done uh, but in terms of like how old the whiskey or how expensive is the wine, it's got to be top, top, top shelf. Like there, yes. I mean, there's a reason that this film is like the second highest rated film on IMDb of all time. Is a reason it's mm-hmm. so highly regarded, and that's because it is more or less consistently perfect for three hours. Um, yeah, it's it's a masterpiece.
3: Definitely, definitely. I think I think yeah.
2: If this was in a restaurant, I'd be turning over that to that second page of the wine to, to, mm-hmm. to buy this one. Do you know what I mean? I'd be, I might have to take out a mortgage to buy this bottle of wine, but I'm having it because it's that's, yeah. It's fantastic. It, Absolutely. It, it can't be bettered, or maybe it can, but we'll get on to part two on another day. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so let's wrap this up. I've got to ask you three more questions, Tim, before I let you out into the world uh the first one being which Coppola member would you keep but in doing so you get rid of the entire rest of the family's filmographies
1: i mean that's a difficult question but it would have to be a flip up uh toss the coin between cage and francis um i would find it difficult to let the godfather slip away into oblivion so i'm going to be controversial and go for Fran- keep francis and lose cage i'm very sorry but yeah no, if it came no, to but I, ideally i'd keep them both
3: I I totally understand. I totally understand. Uh, Francis
2: I've got I've got a lot of love for Francis. Don't worry. I'm not I'm not I'm not a complete cage acolyte. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna you know, come at you like I'm a, a Zack Snyder fan <laughs> online, Tim. Don't worry, you're you're in a safe space here. So um based on this film alone, and I feel like I know your answer, are the Copulas the greatest film family of all time?
1: Yes.
3: <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean, no more needs to be family, said. But
2: yeah. Yes. Uh, and on to the last question, Tim. The most important question of this podcast. What does Bill Murray say to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation?
1: Hail Hydra. <laughs> Perfect. Which I have Perfect. to say is something I picked up from a meme rather than my own wit, but I think it is pretty good. So I'll go with that.
2: If Gary Shandling can say it, then so can Bill Murray. I'll have that. Uh, so, Tim, where can people find you? Um, yeah, Moving Pictures uh, Film Club and anything else you're doing. What's the best place to to get a hold of you oh. if
1: people wish to do? Thanks, so? man yeah i mean i'm on, on twitter at fats coleman um or moving pictures is at moving pics club or you can head on over to www.movingpicturesfilmclub.com
2: perfect well thank you so much tim for coming and making some copola connections with me thank you man And there we have it, guys. The Godfather is checked off the extensive list of Coppola family films to talk about. Uh, don't worry if you feel like in any way we didn't get into everything in that film. Uh, time was precious for us. Uh, only out of the two hours of Tim's time. But um I feel like The Godfather is a film I can revisit whenever the hell I want on this podcast because it's it's such a rich film and there's so much to discuss that, and i love it so much that i feel like i could definitely just find many ways to talk about it and the many different facets of the film whether how that relates to television i know that we've we've got uh, the offer coming up soon the paramount plus tv series starring dan fogler Matthew Good and Miles Teller and Juno Temple, I think, said that all about the kind of making of the Godfather. And there's also the film starring Oscar Isaac, um, Elizabeth Moss, and uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, Francis and the Godfather. So yeah, there's there's going to be plenty more Godfather chat on this podcast. Don't you worry about that. However, if you want to get in touch because you feel like there's uh, points we made, points we didn't make that. Or, or yeah whatever your feelings are on the film please do you can reach me on all the socials so that is twitter instagram facebook and letterbox all at caged in pod or you can drop me an email which is caged in pod at com. as for next week on the podcast obviously we've been to the highest heights of cinema there's only one place we can really go and that's to one of the lowest lows Um, I was joined by Josh Pappenheim of the fantastic Truly Happily Madison podcast uh, to discuss Rob Reiner's 1994 comedy North starring Elijah Wood, uh, Bruce Willis, John Lovitz, Jason Alexander, Julia Louis-Dreyfus and a whole host of other uh, star names in a kind of weird film very very weird film but we get all into that next week as i said i'm joined by josh pappenheim and it was a lot of fun it felt like yeah going from one of the highest highs and need to go to the lowest lows and the week after that i'll tease it now um i'll be speaking to gianni russo who plays carlo in the godfather to talk all about his kind of experience working on this masterpiece his kind of life in, the, in, in Hollywood, some of the fantastic stories. He's got an amazing book called Hollywood Godfather, which um, yeah, I'm currently listening to the audio book of. And he's got this beautiful rasp to his voice. So it's, it's such a great listen. And I can't wait to sit down and talk to Gianni all about that. If you've enjoyed this episode or any other episode of the podcast and would like to support us financially, you can do so heading over to patreon.com forward slash caged in pod where for the little little price of £2.50 or three dollars you can get access to the exclusive series movie brat bros where we're currently on our first season and we are looking at the films of brian de palma through the lens of how his career at that year matches up to francis ford coppola's who had a better year who's the who's the better movie brat and we'll kind of season by season go through all of the kind of movie brats and other kind of interesting filmmakers who are working in the same time frame as francis ford coppola and yeah trying to determine who's the best one but at the same time it's just an excuse to talk about a whole host of other movies and yeah that shows out fortnightly every three weeks who who knows at the moment it's kind of a bit up in the air with that one but um, I'm still trying to iron that out but it's still worth your money the next episode that will be dropping on that uh, will be next week and it will be The Untouchables I was joined by Rich Nelson of the Do You Want Me and formerly of the Betamax Video Club podcast um, to discuss that and it was a whole host of fun and yeah there's four episodes in the back catalogue already get over there as I said it's £2.50 you can you can rattle through them ditch ditch ditch, ditch 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 it and then come back later once there's a whole a whole host more it's a lot of fun yeah i look forward to seeing you over on patreon if you don't want to part with money however you can support the podcast by heading over to apple podcast acar spotify or wherever you're listening to this right now and leaving a lovely five star rating and a review as always, remember to put in your review what does Bill Murray say to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation. I'd obviously love to hear it and I'll obviously read out some of the best ones on the podcast. So as always, guys, I have been Petros Pat Sinibus, your guide through the crazy world of the Coppola family tree. Remember to keep it caged in and I'll catch you next time.
0: fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started
3: this podcast is presented by the breadcrumbs collective home of the pod charles cinecast caged in Coppola connections a droopton limery main franchised and many
1: more to come